Good evening. My name is Barney, but I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> if that tape was so good, why don't we just play the tape and... Uh... <laughs> Not sure I could measure up to all that. Uh, listen, if you folks in the back are uh, uh, trying to get in, there is some room up here if you want to just sit on the floor up here. You know, feel comfortable. Whatever you want to do. I would hate to see people standing like that. But anyway, I hope we all have a good time. I, uh, I believe that uh, I'm always a little surprised <laughs> to find myself uh, standing at a podium at AA anywhere. And especially... Uh, Especially in a, in a crowd like this. I mean, this joint is packed. And, uh, you know, it comes as a bit of a surprise to me that, uh, that I guess it must have been the chicken. You couldn't hear, come here to hear me. I know that because, <laughs> because I'm just a drunk. I don't know. I don't know what, uh, what the wonderful message of AA is, really. I used to think that there was some kind of a, a wonderful message that you could learn and deliver in AA. And then after you delivered the message, then everybody would get up and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer and march out of the room arm in arm sober forever and never to drink again. <laughs> it's been my discovery in Alcoholics Anonymous that it doesn't work that way, but uh, my sponsor has uh, made it very clear to me that uh, whenever I go and talk in a meeting of AA or even talk one-on-one -on -one with a newcomer to, uh, to remember the... Uh, the lesson that Bill W. learned so well, oddly enough, from his Al-Anon wife, <laughs> that whatever message he had to deliver may or may not work for those people he was talking to, and it may or may not keep other people sober. But by delivering the message, by talking to people about his own story, and by telling people what he used to be like and what happened and what he's like now, that he somehow was able to stay sober. And uh, my sponsor reminds me that that's the reason I do this. I hope somebody here identifies with it. I, that would be delightful. Uh, but the hope is that I will identify with parts of it anyway. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess if, if I don't have a drink tonight, it works. I want to thank the committee very much for asking us to come up here. Uh, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm just always shocked if somebody calls and says, hey, come to you know, Eugene, Oregon, or whatever, to uh, tell us all about yourself. But uh, it, it, it really is, is nice when folks are as nice as these people have been. I, from the day yesterday, from the time that I walked in the front door of the hotel, people were just nice and shook hands and said hello, and, and it's, it's just been that kind of deal. And, uh, and I love that about Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, you're not going to find that in the average Kiwanis meeting, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I'm particularly uh, thankful to Bill and, and uh, Russ and the rest of them for making this weekend so nice for me and my uh, wonderful wife. By the way, I want to thank my wife for putting up with this nonsense because she knows my story, and uh, she's heard it a time or two. And uh, I'm sure is terribly bored with it, but, but she was willing to come up here with me uh, from uh, San Diego and... Uh, and uh, spend the weekend, and I, I, I just love that, and I love being with her. Uh, that was not always true, and I'll tell you about that, but uh, <laughs> I love being with her, and it's particularly nice. Uh, she calls me the newcomer at home. She's been sober longer than I have. <laughs> uh, Carol just celebrated 19 years of sobriety this year. And, uh, I 
I sort of think of her as the mother Cabrini of AA in La Jolla, you know. She <laughs> talks to all these babies all the time. And uh, the interesting thing about Carol, I, I'll tell you her story a little bit first. And uh, <laughs> The interesting thing about Carol is that she really cares about people. I always find that interesting because it's difficult for me to do that. I simulate interest most of the time. <laughs> I'm so self-centered and self-obsessed, you know. I, if I sit and look at you while you're talking, there's a 50-50 chance I'm not listening, you know. <laughs> I'm tuned into some other frequency. And, but I know how to sit there and say, oh, really? Oh, my God. <laughs> and then you started to drink in the morning. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but I, uh, I have had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous how to, uh, how to try to listen to people. I found that the art of conversation is listening, and I, I didn't know that. And, and uh, today sometimes it's hard to tell. Carol says, I talk all the time, and I'm so damn loud, I don't know how to whisper. Uh, if we're sitting in a restaurant or something, she'll say, keep your voice down. And, uh, but she really cares about people, and I know that she does. And, uh, and she's a wonderful uh, member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She would no more stand behind this podium and talk to anybody than then go to the moon, but she is a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I really believe this program is, is one-on-one, one of us talking to the other uh, in some little uh, coffee shop or in the back of a meeting someplace or in the living room just sitting and talking, and I, uh, it took me a long time to find that out, too. And I'll tell you about that. I, um, I know that, uh, that there's a tape being made of this meeting, and the tapes are there are probably going to be about three people that buy this tape, but... Uh, <laughs> But I know a lady who's going to buy it, and she's going to send it to a guy named Russ in New Jersey. So I want Russ to pay particular attention here. <laughs> you may identify with some of this stuff, Russ. <laughs> we know you're an Allen, but we love you anyway. I was, um, I was born in New York and, uh, and raised in Chicago. My family moved to Chicago when I was uh, six months old. And so I think of myself as a Chicagoan. And um, I was raised in an Irish Catholic uh, neighborhood, Irish Catholic family. And uh, I had an alcoholic mother and uh, a father who was not. Uh, but my mother was a wonderful lady. She, uh, she was the kind of a lady who, you know, had the apron and made the cookies and... and uh, made the homemade bread and did all the wonderful things, and sometimes Mom got drunk. And uh, after my father died in 1950, I was 14 years old when he died in 1950, and, um, and after that, Mom just uh, kind of really went into the bottle a lot. And uh, I found it embarrassing, and I found it uh, difficult to understand. I, I could not understand for the life of me why she got so drunk, and uh, the problem was she wasn't drunk all the time. Sometimes I came home from school, and she was. And sometimes she was, and I never knew. And I, uh, I, I don't remember ever saying, I'm never going to do that, because the thought never occurred to me that I would ever do anything like that. I mean, just get that drunk and make a fool out of yourself. I mean, it just wasn't in the cards for me. Uh, but Mom did that, and, and uh, she died younger than she should have, I think. And, um, but I don't know, you know, whether her alcoholism uh, had anything to do with my alcoholism. She never poured a drink down my throat. I did. Uh, who, know, who the hell knows? I don't know. Uh, my father, on the other hand, was a hard-working uh, man who uh, uh, worked 14, 16 hours a day. He was in the restaurant business, and he just, he just worked hard all his life. He was, uh, he was illiterate. He could not read and write, and he, uh, he was um, uh, very uh, interested in the fact that we were getting an education, and he loved to see his children 
get an education and learn. And, uh, and I know he wanted the best of us. And, uh, but he, uh, he was the kind of a guy, he'd get home from a long day and he, uh, he'd get a bottle of Four Roses down off the shelf because a doctor had told him once that it would be good for him to have a drink at night. So he'd get that Four Roses off the shelf and he had a shot glass on the kitchen table and he'd pour the shot. And then he'd go in and he'd take off his clothes and shower and, and uh, put on his robe or whatever he was going to wear and he'd be dancing around and he'd go out in the kitchen. He was in the restroom business so we ought to check the ovens and see what mom was cooking and see what was going on. I watched this performance every night and still that little ounce of four roses would be sitting there and he'd walk around and do his stuff and go in the living room, probably read the paper for a while and listen to the radio. We used to sit and listen to the radio. That's how damn old I am, listen to the radio. <laughs> and uh, finally before dinner, Dad would go out and he'd pick up that shot glass. And by the way, he'd have a glass of water sitting next to it. And he'd pick up that shot glass and he'd throw back that whiskey and, and he just made a terrible face, you know. <laughs> and then he'd drink some water, and that was it. That's the way my dad drank. And, uh, you know, he never quite understood Mom and her Irish relatives because they were different, you know. They, my mother was one of 16 children, and her uh, brothers and sisters would come over every once in a while. They'd sit in the kitchen and drink beer and... When they finished the quart beer bottles, they used to roll them down the hall where he was sitting. <laughs> he was just kind of a natural owl now, and he'd just sit there and watch the bottles go by. <laughs> Why don't you turn on Amos and Andy, Barney, and we'll see what's going on. But it was that kind of a family. It was an Irish Catholic neighborhood, and we had a... I went to St. Lawrence Church there on the south side of Chicago, and I... Very early on, I learned from the Dominican nuns and later from the Carmelite priests in high school and later from the Holy Cross Fathers at the University of Notre Dame. I learned about God and I learned about living and I learned about good living and I learned about decent people and I learned about how to, how to be a decent person, how to be a good person. And uh, I hear people from time to time who blame their religious background for the way they feel or the way they are. I don't blame that at all. I think those people did the best they could. I really do. I think they tried. They made a massive effort, and they did teach me how to read and write, or I'd starve to death. But the problem was that the, that the whole business, the whole aura of religion and God was something that, that just never seemed to fit with me. I never felt comfortable with it. I never felt right with it. I, I was an altar boy. I learned my Latin. I was a, a perfectionist from the word go uh, as a young man, and I wanted to be as good as I could be and, and just look as good as I could. And, and you've heard other speakers here talk about the same thing in AA all the time. You hear people talk about trying to look good, trying to look good. And, uh, and it just seems to me that when I make that kind of an effort to try massively to look good, that somehow inside there's some sense that I'm not. You know, that I've got to put on this facade in order for people to think I'm okay. But I know I did that, and I, um, I spent a lot of time trying to convince them that I was okay. And I uh, went to church, and I, I, I served Mass, and I was a good boy. But the fact is that, uh, that I'm not. Uh, the fact is that I have known since I was probably eight or nine years old, I guess, that I am a moral leper. I'm just a rotten little guy. And uh, I'm corrupt and, I'm, uh, and I'm, I'm a terrible person. And I don't, I don't have good feelings about other people. I just, I'm either afraid of them or I detest them or I... Or I, I just don't like them, or I'm just, I don't know, neutral about them, I guess, sometimes. But, 
I kind of knew that I didn't have this love for my fellow man. I remember Monsignor McGuire there used to talk about the pagans all the time. We had to care about the pagans. And I knew who the pagans were. I figured, what do we care about the pagans? I don't know who they are. Well, we'd take up a collection for them all the time. But it was, it was like some kind of another world. It was like I was on the moon sitting there in church and looking at the statues and, and, and looking around at the stained glass windows and, and, and being part of all that. And every week I remember going to confession and confessing my sins. And I remember the nuns telling us that if you committed little tiny sins, they were called venial sins, and, and you had a soul. You had something called a soul. And the soul is in there somewhere. I don't know where it's in here somewhere. And... If you commit the little sins, you get little black spots on your soul. <laughs> and then the big sins are the mortal sins. The big ones. And you get the bigger black spots. And I just had this terrible feeling most of my life of this black soul. <laughs> but the good news is they can't see your soul. So if you act like you're okay, they'll never know. But I committed a lot of sins, and I confessed my sins on a regular basis. And before I hit the back door of the church, my mind was working overtime, and I had three or four spots already. <laughs> and my hope was that one day I would go to confession and walk out the door of the church and get hit by a bus and killed instantly before I could think too much. Because for what I was thinking, baby, you go to purgatory and you go to hell and you get, you know. And I knew that. And I, I just knew I was a bad person. And I identified myself as a moral leper and a bad person all my life. I just kind of knew that about me. And I knew there were the good people. I'd met good people in my life. I'd met some good priests and good nuns and good, just regular folks. And they were in church and they seemed to be getting it. They seemed to be getting something out of that. They seemed to catch on somehow, and they said their rosaries and they did the right thing. And I never wanted to do the right thing. I just, every instinct in my body wanted to go the wrong way all the time. And I discovered that sin was, was pleasurable, and uh, <laughs> most things I ever liked to do were sinful. And, uh, so I was in big trouble in that regard, and I was just this kind of little, kind of weak, fallible, frightened little wimp walking around trying to act like he was getting it. And I wasn't getting it. And so by the time I, uh, I got kicked out of Notre Dame after three years, uh, through a series of very bad breaks and misunderstandings, actually, <laughs> which was my problem most of my life, uh, people just didn't understand. My case is different. I'm a little weird. I'm a little different. I'm a pretty sensitive person. I feel things. I just have always known that, that I'm secretly, I feel things more deeply than you do. Uh, I just have always kind of known that, and I, I, it's not something you can really explain to people. It's just if, if you say something nasty to me, it really is painful. I mean, if I say something to you, what the hell? You know, you're going to <laughs> But you must understand that I just feel things more deeply than you do, and I, I have this great sense of commitment somehow, but I just don't know where to commit myself. I just, you know. <laughs> and I just, I just walked around kind of feeling strange. But I did real well in school when I was a good student, and I got good grades because I decided somewhere, I suppose, in my teens, 
that I wanted to be rich and famous. And uh, because I knew from going to the movies <laughs> that if you got rich and famous, you were okay. I mean, hardly anybody ever says anything negative to rich people. <laughs> you ever think about that? I mean, can you imagine, you know, somebody walking up to Jerry Buss and telling him to screw off? I mean, it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen very often, you know. He's the guy that owns the Lakers, by the way. That's a little... Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> they won the world championship! Uh, they're like the trailblazers, only better. You know what I'm saying? I wonder why people never like me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, where the hell was I? Oh, so, but I, I was trying to, to do as well as I could, but at Notre Dame they had this requirement, or had at that time, I think they've changed it now, that you can't cut classes without an excuse. And I cut too many classes because my interests in college were really in theater because I, I just loved acting. Now, I think I loved acting because it allowed me to be somebody else. I think that's true. I, uh, I remember writing papers on it in college and writing about being an actor and what it was like and how it felt. And, and it was the sense of trying to create this other character, trying to become this other character. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I love doing that. I love putting on the makeup and the costumes. Carol thinks it's a little weird now when I do it, but I... <laughs> She says, okay, as long as you don't wear the miniskirts. Just... <laughs> but uh, I love doing that. I love pretending, you know, and fantasizing and being somebody else. It's just great. And I think, I believe that part of it is because there's something about me that says, you're not much, Barney. You're really not much. You're not half as bright as you'd like to be. Uh, you're, not, you're, you're just not swift like the rest of them. You just don't have what it takes. You're just this rotten little moral person, immoral person, who's just kind of walking around in life and you're a phony and you're faking it and don't let them know it for Christ's sake. You know, that kind of thing. Just that little guy that walks around. Now, I'm six feet four almost, but inside of me there's this little guy about four feet tall. And he's got black spots and he's a rotten little son of a <laughs> And I... Uh, I, uh, anyway, I got out of Notre Dame uh, uh, as a result of that. And, uh, but I had learned uh, radio broadcasting in college. I had become a radio broadcaster, and, and, uh, and I loved that. It was kind of fun, seemed kind of easy to me. And um, so when I got out of school, first I went home, and, 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 and I, I, I uh, became a switchman on the Illinois Central Railroad. I was in my de one of my depressive periods. And I, and I became a switchman, and I just took my lantern and went out in my boots. And my mom, you know, every poor woman just watching this, this, this man who was supposed to be, that she had such high hopes for, you know. And I'm just, I'm going to be a switchman on the railroad. I got kicked out of Notre Dame. I felt like a failure again. I felt like I'd screwed up again. I just screw up all the time. I screw up. I try and I try and I try, but I screw up. There's just something in me that screws up. And i got to have a place for people like me, where, you know, just... Let the screw-ups be successful once in a while. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, they judge you on your performance out there. It's just a... 
and they just watch you all the time, and it's like, and they're writing things down. You know. Oh, yes, okay. And then, of course, the God I learned about as a child writes them down, you know, and oh, Jesus. And so I got all these people writing things down, and I'm just walking around trying to be somebody, and I don't know how. But I wanted to be rich and famous, and I knew that the, that the way, the route to that was, uh, was to, uh, to go into broadcasting. I just felt like I could just get rich and famous somehow doing that, because other people had, and why not me? And I got a job at a little radio station in Monroe, Michigan, a little 500-watt daytimer. And uh, I learned everything there was to learn about the radio broadcasting business because I think there was only three of us working there. It was, uh, you know, you, you sold a little airtime and you went in and turned on the transmitter in the morning and you, you did the early news and then you did the wake-up show and, you know, played a few records and then you did the telephone quiz show and then you did the, you know, go out and do the interviews on the mall in this little town of Monroe, Michigan, and then you get out at night and cover the city commission and try to figure out what that's all about and, and you learn the, how to read a police blotter and how to cover a fire and how to write it and all that stuff. And, and, uh, and I did that. And I, I was very good at all that. And I was working hard. And I, I haven't heard a word about drinking yet because I ain't drinking yet. You know, oh, I'd had a beer here and there, a little drinky-poo here and there. But I never, I never really got that involved in it. It wasn't any big deal to me. I didn't care that much about it. And, uh, you know, I was working. I want to be rich and famous. I want to get some stuff. Because my measurement of success and the world's measurement of success is the accumulation of stuff. If you get a lot of stuff, they know you're okay. And after you get a lot of stuff and they got a lot of stuff, your stuff's got to get more expensive than their stuff. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, I suppose the rule is whoever dies with the most stuff wins. I mean, I just, that's the only thing I could figure out. But I got into the radio broadcasting business there, and then before I knew it, uh, a year later, I, I was hired as a news director in Toledo, Ohio, at a radio station, and I was news director, and I had a couple of guys working for me that were older than me. I was 22. And, uh, and I knew how to go in there and fake it. I knew how to go in and pretend I was okay. I knew how to go in. If I don't know anything in the world, I know how to go in and look like I know what I'm doing. I know how to act okay. I know how to behave. Somebody said, Polly, today was tough. I know how to behave right. Yeah, how you doing, big guy? Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you. 22 year old punk, you know, walking around in a grown up body. Just crazy. Now, among other things, I'm scared to death. I can't even put a label on fear, but I'm afraid. I never put labels on my feelings. We did, psychiatry wasn't real big in my neighborhood where I grew up. <laughs> so I never found out that I was afraid and that I felt inadequate sometimes and that I just felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't belong wherever the hell I was, and it sometimes felt like I didn't belong on this planet, for God's sake. Or I'm in the wrong century. I used to say that to people when I was drinking. I was born in the wrong century. <laughs> there was a guy in AA, this beautiful guy named Bill used to say, he described it as well as anybody, he'd say, sometimes I get the feeling that the spaceship is going to come down. I'm going to be walking down the street out here, and a spaceship is going to come down, and three guys are going to get out that look just like me, and they're safe. Come on, Barney, we're going home now. <laughs> yeah. But if you look grown up and you look like you're together and you look like you're okay and you're loud enough about it, you can convince a lot of them. And I, uh, I did that. And by the time I was uh, 
23 years old, I was working a news director at a 50,000-watt radio station in Detroit. And my career was moving, and I'm, I'm moving right along, and things are going well, and I got people working for me, and I just got the world by the tail. By the time I was 26 years old, I was the anchor man for a television station owned by ABC in Detroit. And now it's wonderful. Now it's great. Everything is moving fine now. When we moved in there and took over that station, that is me and the other anchor guy and the news director, it was third in the market, and it was just not doing well. And we were putting that thing together, and we were working hard, and we were grinding it out. And I know how to do that. Show up and really go get them, baby. Give me a go-getter. Now, there's a go-getter in me. I don't have that instinct. My instinct says, oh, Jesus, don't show up. <laughs> they're not going to like you today. Stay away from those people. They're smarter than you are, and they're better than you are. Just stay away. But I had to go prove, prove something to somebody. I don't know what the hell I was trying to prove. But I was trying to prove... I, I guess I was trying to prove everything other than what I felt about me and about you and about life. Because I didn't understand life. I don't know what it's all about. I don't think I believe in God, really. I, I don't guess I do. And I, and I, and I, don't, I don't know what, what my values are. I don't have any values. And I don't, who the hell do you trust? I don't trust anybody. You can't trust anybody. It's crazy. But I was making money like crazy. They're just throwing money at me. And then the Detroit riot hit back in 67, and that was a beauty. Oh, Jesus. It was great. <laughs> what a great riot. <laughs> Six days of burning and killing. Oh, my God. And we covered that thing like a blanket. We had reporters all over that thing. And I'm down in Detroit, and we're... Going and covered stuff in the streets. The only guys I was afraid of were the National Guardsmen. They were real nervous, you know. <laughs> it was wonderful. Now, what I have to tell you is that somewhere along the line in this career move that I made, now here I am, 27 years old. The ratings turned around. We're number one, baby. And they're flying us into New York and putting us up at Leonard Goldenson's suite of the New York Hilton. And they're giving us show tickets and perfume and candy and anything we wanted. Champagne, yeah. I was 27 years old. Can you imagine? 27 years old. I figured it would never end. It's just going to happen now. But somewhere along the line in this career stuff, I made the discovery that every alcoholic, I suppose, sooner or later has to make. And it was this. No matter how I feel, no matter how it's going, if it's going good or if it's going bad, if I perceive enormous pressure on me, if I feel anxiety, feel frustration, if I feel like I don't fit in, if I'm terrified, if I'm happy, whatever's going on, if I have a few drinks, I feel better. It's as simple as that. Drinking makes me feel better. Why do you drink? It makes you feel better. Why do you drink so much? I don't know. <laughs> Just do. But I, I was drinking too much, and I know I was drinking too much even, even in those days. 25, 26, 27 years, I know I was drinking too much. But so what, baby? So what? The ratings are good. The money's coming in. Things are happening. The world is great. Everything is wonderful. And I'm going out to those saloons, which, by the way, are filled with intellectuals and success stories. <laughs> I never met a failure in one of those bars. Ever. They're all corporate vice presidents and geniuses, and they're wonderful. And I discovered if I went out there and I got among those success stories and I got with those people, life was a grand place indeed. 
And I did. And I loved it. Now, somewhere along the line, the woman that I had married, who, by the way, had six children from me, <laughs> decided that I, my drinking was a little peculiar. She decided that I shouldn't drink so much. And I couldn't understand her attitude. I was bringing her money. I, by that time, we bought a home. We had cars. We had clothes. We had stuff. <laughs> and it was going great. And she's bugging me about my drinking, and I didn't understand that. Oh, yeah, sure. From time to time, I would do something embarrassing. I was a little bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> but what the hell? It's all part of life and part of living and part of fun and part of just being there. And I didn't understand her attitude. And I, uh, but I knew that it was, uh, the heat was on. And when the heat was on real bad, I would quit drinking. No problem, baby. I got a handle on this thing. No problem. <laughs> I'd go on the wagon for a while. And I'll prove to her and to me and to everybody else around me that I'm fine. I can handle this stuff. Are you kidding me? Ha, 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 ha. So I quit drinking for a while. Now, the first two or three days aren't bad. <laughs> if you're coming off a bad hangover anyway, it's not bad. You're going to get a little rest. But after about three or four days, some very odd things start happening to me. See, because I have this terrible fear inside of me, and I have this terrible sense of inadequacy, and I have this feeling that they're all out to get me anyway. And the pressure and the anxiety and the frustration of my business drives me crazy! <laughs> work, work, work! <laughs> no end of it! And when I don't drink... Life sort of goes from being stereophonic sound, full screen, cinemascope in color. It just narrows right down to a black screen. It's like a 1935 William Powell movie. It's kind of interesting, but scratchy in places. And you just go to work every day. Show up and put up with their crap for all this. Let them put the pressure on you one more time. Then you go home at night and let her put some more pressure on you. The bills are coming in. And the kids are a pain in the ass. Why don't you take them to Little League? Because I am a bad athlete. I was always a bad athlete, and I don't want my sons to know that. But I took him to Little League, and I took him to Y Indian Guides. I made totem poles. I can't drive a nail with a hammer. My totem pole was always crooked, never looked like the other fathers, you know. That. Oh, yes, I made this for Charlie, yes. This... They look at mine. Oh, did you help your sons with that? Okay. Sorry. Come back to this goddamn meeting again. 
And you just and you, you, you just feel frustrated all the time. You wake up in the morning and you know you know the old joke. It's as good as it's going to be all day. You just you just wake up and you're sitting there in the bedroom and you just know that you can't go out and do it one more time. You can't go out and face them again. You can't go out in that world full of alligators who are leaping at your throat and just have to go out there and, and do it again. Look like you're something. Look look like you're successful for Christ's sake. Be something. I think I'll stay in my room today. <laughs> I'll have the flu again. Maybe she'll call again. Because I haven't got the guts to do it. Because I'm a coward, in addition to everything else. I'm a wimpy little coward, and I hate myself. No, no, I'll take the shower. I get the shower. You get the clothes on. You get the car. You drive to work. You walk in. The boss walks by. Hey, Barney, how you doing? What are you supposed to do? Tell him the truth? How's it going, Barney? Well, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, really? What are you afraid of? I don't know. It beats a lot of me. I just woke up that way this morning. It's like a goddamn ceiling was falling in on me. Crazy. I've had a drink in five days. I'm out of my mind. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Walk into a newsroom full of bright people, articulate writers and producers, and people that you know are just a hell of a lot smarter than you are. You sit down, and they're all looking at you because you're the anchor man. <laughs> How you doing, Barney? Well, I have a deep-seated sense of inadequacy. <laughs> I don't think I fit in here very well, and I... I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I don't know why they're paying me so much money and I'm scared all the time. <laughs> Walking around like I know what I'm doing. I'm crazy. I just haven't had a drink in five days. And just crazy. No, no. The, the proper answer is, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm at the top of my game, baby. How you doing? Well, I'll tell you, I don't know how you are, but after about a week of that crap, I... Uh, I gotta have some relief. I gotta have some relief. I, I, the tension and all of it is just more than I can bear, so I'll, I'm gonna go have a couple of lousy drinks, okay? Like two, maybe. Put a lot of water in them. Tall scotch and water with the lemon twist. <laughs> Don't give me that bar stuff. Give me the good stuff. What difference does it make? Because I know where I'm going. Because I never had two drinks in my life. Except the last time I drank, and that's another story. But the problem is that when I start to drink, first of all, it makes me feel better instantly. And I wonder why I did a week. <laughs> and by the time I've had three or four, I'm buying drinks for everybody because it's so damn good. They gotta have some. <laughs> Linguini and everything. Come on, let's go. Put on my tab, sweetheart. And the world starts looking better, and people look better, and it's all right, and the screen widens out, and it's color again, baby, and it's stereophonic sound, and it's a great world. Oh, God. It's wonderful. Now, from time to time, well-meaning people who really cared about me would suggest to me that I had a drinking problem. I don't have a drinking problem. When I drink, I feel better. 
If I stay sober too long, I get crazy. I would describe it more as a sobriety problem. <laughs> Where the hell are you going to go with that? Sobriety's anonymous. I don't know. But you can't explain it to the social drinkers. Social drinkers. I don't understand social drinkers. They're weird. They're strange people. You ever been around them? They're weird, weird people. You give a social drinker a drink and you got a good party going and you have a little drink for yourself and then pour a few drinks for the others and have a couple more yourself and you get back around to the social drinker and he's only halfway through the damn thing. And you say, come on, get, get it on, baby, let's go. Come on, drink up. The social drinker is the corny guy that will look at you and say, no, I don't think so. I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> you want to just rip the guy's jugular vein out. <laughs> say, yeah, that's what it's all about. That's right. Now it's getting good. It took me a long time in AA to find out social drinkers don't like that feeling. Do you know that? They just don't like the feeling I take for granted. Strange people. Well, I have a tendency to travel a lot when I drink. I move from bar to bar. I move from city to city. I, I lose my car all the time. I forget what city I'm in. One time I woke up in the Miami airport and it was Saturday afternoon. And, and the last thing I could remember was sitting in a bar in Detroit having a couple of drinks Friday night. That's not so bad, except it's tough to tell which airport you're in because they all look alike. <laughs> if it ever happens to you, <clears throat> try the newspaper rack. I finally figured that out. <laughs> well, you don't want to walk over to the security guard to ask him. <laughs> what city am I in? <laughs> newspaper rack. But the trouble with the newspaper rack in the Miami airport is that they have a lot of Washington Post and New York Times, and, but they have a lot of Miami Heralds, so you kind of figure it out. And then you get home and there's the pressure again. Where have you been? What difference does it make? Why do you do this to us? Ah, because I'm a mean, no good son of a bitch, I guess. Why do you behave in such a bizarre way? Maybe you should go to church. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I tried it. I went down and saw the pastor at the Catholic Church. By this time, we moved to California. I came to California because I figured a change in environment would help. <laughs> we call it a geographic at AA, but anyway, the Scotch was doing to me in California exactly what I was doing in Detroit. And I, um, I went down to this church and I talked to this pastor and I said, my wife thinks I'm drinking too much, but uh, of course, she's a little weird. Uh, but I, I, I really need to get my life in order. And so I thought that maybe, because I had 16 hours of theology at Notre Dame, I thought perhaps I could teach the little ones Sunday school. And this priest just, you know, he said, oh, that'd be great, you know. I mean, the, the only thing, you never want to tell them that you don't believe in God, because it... <laughs> they look at you kind of funny, so... I didn't tell him that. I just taught Sunday school. 
And I, I did all right with that. I could fake anything for a while. But that didn't make any sense because I continued to drink exactly the way I was drinking. When I was 35 years old, my wife divorced me. I had lost my stuff. Through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, I <laughs> did the screw it again, you know. I just, I, just, I just ended up with nothing, and I owed all this money. I owed thousands of dollars, and uh, I felt it was kind of unfair, because some of it was dead money. I don't like to owe dead money. Dead money is when you owe on something that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of unfair to have to make that payment to Sears on carpeting I didn't even own anymore on a house I'd sold that the guy ripped out and put new carpeting. I mean, it's not fair. But I, um, I was upset she was divorcing me. You can't divorce me, first of all, because I'm Catholic. <laughs> well, I found out that wasn't true. But I had a great line, great shot, parting shot, right? She's walking out the door, and I said, okay, if you got to go, you got to go. But I demand custody of the six children. She said, okay. <laughs> Maybe work something out. She was gone. So I took the six kids, the oldest of whom was about 13 and the youngest was a year, and we, I took them over to uh, rented this apartment in Santa Monica. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't enough room in there. I was sleeping on the couch downstairs. And, and uh, and I, I was never so scared, so desperate, so so down, so lonely. Oh God, the loneliness! You know, just sitting in bars at night and wondering why it all had happened to me. Why was I getting screwed like this? What? Why couldn't I have married somebody more loyal? <laughs> why is my life like this? I've tried so hard all my life to be something, to be successful, and to get some stuff, and it just can't work for a person like me because there's just some, I don't know, some links missing somewhere and I just can't, I can't seem to put it together. I used to be successful and I don't know what the hell's the matter. And I got drunk and I, um, I called a man that I had met some months before who had told me right out, told me right out that he was an alcoholic. Said it, right? <laughs> Didn't seem to care if anybody heard it. He just... Hey, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> now, I know that I'm not an alcoholic because when I drink, I feel better, and if I stay sober so long, I get crazy. That's not a drinking problem. However, when I drink, I look very alcoholic. <laughs> so it's very easy to make that mistake. And I called this guy, and I was drunk in hell when I called him, and I said, uh, Hey, uh, you, know, you told me you haven't had a drink in four and a half years. <laughs> I said, my case isn't quite that bad, but I, I, need, to, uh, I need to stop drinking for a while, because my wife is gone, and <laughs> I'm out of money, and I'm in this little apartment, and I don't have anything, and I owe all this money, and I've got to get my life together a little bit. I'm a little crazy, and I, just, I need some help here. And what I need to do is find out, how do you stay sober like that? <laughs> Because I need like a couple of months. 
A little money in the bank, get some bills paid. I'll be okay. I have a career. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not alcoholic. <laughs> not me. I vote. You know, I, <laughs> I'm a regular person. I'm not, you know. But I just got to quit for a while. And I only seem to be able to make about a week on my own. And I, as a matter of fact, I ain't been making a week lately. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm tired and I'm exhausted. And I'm going through this whole retinue problem. And he said, well, I think we've got to go to a meeting. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. I'm in the public eye. I work on television. I'm an anchorman here. And uh, I, you don't think I could just go to a public meeting with them? <laughs> Somebody might think I was, you know, one of them. He said, well, if you want my help, you're going to have to do it my way. And he seemed absolutely adamant about this idea of going to this meeting. And I said, well, okay, we'll go to the meeting. So we went to the meeting. It was really boring. It really was. We went in this little clubhouse in Beverly Hills. And there's about 60 guys in there. It's a stag, men's stag, first of all. And, and they're all sitting around, you know, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And just, hey, glad to see you. Nice shaking hands. All like... And... Uh, I went in and I listened, and they get up and they get the, these guys give these little quick three-minute pitches, and they told some terrible things. I mean, just, oh, these guys, <laughs> alcoholics, all right. I have no question about them. <laughs> and they all seem to just be delighted with one another, and they, you know, they they applaud and laugh in the wrong places. And you know, if the guys had if the guys had a really bad story, they just get all excited. <laughs> really sick people, and I'm sitting in there, and I'm thinking, what the hell's going on with these people? And, uh, and then they all get all through, and they all get up, and they hold hands <laughs> and pray. Come on. Give me a break. And then they go out to coffee shops and do the same thing. They keep telling these terrible stories. And then, the, and then this guy suggested that we do the same thing again tomorrow. <laughs> I saw you people do this every day. <laughs> he said, well, do you want a drink or don't you? He said, no, I don't want to drink, but come on. I, you know. But we did it every day. We did it every day, every night, every day, every night. Boring, boring, boring. And then they give you this blue book. I never bought the damn thing, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and they've all written, isn't it cute? They've all written their names and phone numbers in it. Like I'm really going to call them. <laughs> there isn't anybody in that meeting I would have had a drink with. <laughs> but they just see, it's wonderful. Here's our book and our names and our phone numbers. Ah! Oh, gosh. Dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And some of the meetings are in bad places. Dingy, dingy. Beverly Hills wasn't bad, but I'm telling you, some of them were not so hot. Little basements of churches, and weird little groups. Now I seem so thrilled about it. There was some talk about God, you know. 
And I couldn't quite get a handle on it. I said, I don't know, is this religious? And they said, no, it's not religious, it's spiritual. I said, well, what's the difference? They said, well, spirituality has to do with a lot of things, Barney. It has to do with how you feel about me and how I feel about you. It has to do about how we feel about one another. It has to do about our relationship with some kind of a higher power. And right away, I was dead. I said, I knew you were getting to that. Because I can't get into that. And they said, look. Guy said, look, you can have any higher power you want to, Barney, as long as you're reasonably sure it isn't you. understand all that and I got the book and I'm looking through the book and then I start checking this out I want to find out about the outfit right gonna go to the meetings I figure it out I found out about the leaders up here <laughs> our leaders I got the pictures on the walls in the meetings so I checked them out let me tell you about the leaders our founders <laughs> one guy is a broken down stockbroker from New York couldn't make it could not make is a bum couldn't, he wasn't successful. Never got rich even after he got sober. <laughs> Come on. The other guy is a, is, is, is a, is a drunken doctor from Akron. <laughs> and you wouldn't let him land to boil, this guy. <laughs> and here's the weird part. It's his birthday they celebrate as the founding of AA, the second guy. Now, what do you think? Most organizations going to be the first guy, our founder. Not this outfit. Oh, no. <laughs> the second guy. I used to sit and think about that. I wonder what they do that for. Second guy. Weird. <laughs> June 10th, 1935. Dr. Bob. <laughs> Bill gave him a beer so he could do his surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Went to meetings, went to meetings, went to meetings, went to meetings, went to meetings. Hated the meetings. Disliked the book. I decided the book was badly written. <laughs> it, was, it was sophomoric, I thought, and antiquated, actually, written in 1939. Come on, this was 1972. <laughs> I mean, you could take whole sections of that book and just tighten them right down to a couple of paragraphs, baby, and stuff a little pam pamphlet that anybody with any brights at all could read, and who needs the big book? And so I didn't. <laughs> but I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I hated the meetings. And finally I sat down with this man one night and I said, I figured out what's wrong. I figured out what's wrong here. I know why I don't like this deal. He said, why not? I said, of course, I'm not alcoholic. And I'll tell you why. Apparently, and I listen to these people and I listen to what they're saying, believe me. Apparently, when these people get sober, they feel better. <laughs> I heard him say it. I've gotten sober dozens of times. And I don't feel better. I got crazy. Because my real problem is that I don't have enough money and my problem is that I'm anxiety-ridden. My problem is that I'm scared to death all the time. My problem is I don't tell the matter to me, but I'm weird and different and strange. That's what's wrong with me. I drink once in a while, but that's just so I can feel better. He said, just keep coming back. <laughs> AAs have no logical answers. 
Hey, ladies, cliches on you by the dozens. But this sponsor of mine was a huge man. He was six feet six, 300 pounds. He used to put his arms around me. With I hated that. But he loved me. He put his arms around me. I love you. I said, you. He did it in front of people. He'd say, just believe this, Barney. Everything is going to be all right. And I'd say, when? I've been sober 35 days. I still owe the money. I still got the six kids in the apartment. I still got to go to work every day and face those alligators. I'm crazier in hell. I hate the meetings. When is it going to get all right? Keep coming back. <laughs> None of it made any sense to me. Absolutely did not. He decided I should get into action. He was, he was great at that. I've got to get into action. So he had me be the coffee maker on Saturday night. What that means is you show up at 6 o'clock and make the coffee for the boobs that are going to show up at 8.30, and it's free labor for them. <laughs> the only thing I could see. So he made me a floor mopper on Tuesday night in, in addition to the coffee job. And I got pretty good at that, actually. I was mopping the left side of the floor at this meeting, and the guy who was mopping the right side, A, was not as efficient as I was. <laughs> he left spots on his side. And I always finished ahead of him. I always won. I never told him there was a race, but you've got to keep an edge. You know? <laughs> And when they changed secretaries and they took my mop away from me, I was mad at them. <laughs> and to this day, I walk in that hall and that left side is not as clean as it was. <laughs> they don't know how it was in the old days. Well, we knew how to clean. Oh. I became a greeter on Thursday night. That was the one I hated most of all. Because I don't want to say hello to anybody. Come on. I don't want to be here. I don't like being here. I'm not even sure I'm alcoholic. I don't think so. And I just, I, you know, I don't like what's going on here. I don't believe in God. There's no shot for me here. But to, come on, don't ask me to be a greeter. Stand in the door of the meeting and say hello to everybody who comes in. There were over 200 people coming to that meeting. Hi, my name is Barney, and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to our meeting. <laughs> and then the newcomers. Oh, my sponsor was giving me, he had become my sponsor, because everybody has sponsors, so I asked him to be my sponsor, get people off my back. Just get the heat off. Do you have a sponsor? Yeah, Tim, go talk to him. <laughs> so he would give me names of people at, at places in Skid Row hotels to pick up and bring to the meeting. And I said, well, aren't there people with cars that live down there? or at least closer than I live. He said, no, 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 you go get this guy. He's brand new. We can bring him to the meeting. I said, what am I supposed to tell him? That I hate AA, that I hate the book, that I think speakers are goofy. I don't believe in God, and it's a lot of crap. What am I telling him? What if, unlike me, he's really an alcoholic? That could be trouble. He said, well, in your case, don't talk to him. We'll talk to him. You just... So I'd bring him to the meeting, you know. And I hated that. When I was six days sober, I met a guy 
I'm at a meeting six days sober, and a guy comes up to me, and he says, Hey, my name is John, and I got four days. <laughs> I said, yeah? He said, I know how to stay sober. I know how to do this thing. I said, how do you know? He says, I've been sober lots of times. <laughs> I ran the program at Tatton State Hospital. I know all this stuff. He says, we got to work with a newcomer. I said, what are you talking about? I got six days sobriety. I am a newcomer. You know, there's a guy in the kitchen newer than we are. We go in the kitchen. There's a guy named Benny sitting there. He's drunk. I said, what are we doing with him? He said, we're going to share the message. Because I don't have a car and Ben doesn't have a car. You got a car. So we took Ben out to the coffee shop and we talked to Ben and Ben was drunk. He didn't care. And we took Ben home and then I took John home and John called me the next day. He says, uh, why don't you pick me up at such and such a time and we'll go get Ben and we'll take him to the meeting. I said, well, uh, I don't know. He said, what do we want to do this for? He said, if I don't have a car and Ben doesn't have a car. <laughs> so we got to go get John and we go pick up Ben and we take him to the meeting and Ben's still drunk. <laughs> We repeated this performance for about two solid weeks. And Ben's lying to me. I said, Ben, you're drunk. He said, nah, it's coming out of my pores. <laughs> now, you got to understand my position. I'm a television newscaster. I haven't got time for this crap. We get to his house one night, and Ben's standing on the sidewalk. He ain't got his shoes on. I said, where's your shoes, Ben? He said, she took them away from me. She thinks I'm drunk, but I'm not drunk. I said, you are drunk, Ben. You're drunk. I said, we got to get your shoes. So John went to the door. She wouldn't give him the shoes. Ben says, yeah, the worst part is she called the cops. <laughs> Can you imagine the headlines the next day? <laughs> Television newscaster with barefoot drunk on corner. You know. I said, Ben, get in the damn car. Let's go. We went to the meeting. I'm just crazy, just crazy. And I went to the, there was a guy with three years of sobriety there, and I went up to him at the coffee break, and I said, I got this guy Ben, and he's drunk all the time, and he's driving me nuts. And if I keep him with me, I'm going to get drunk. He says, if he's going to get you drunk, dump him. I said, what do you mean? He says, anything that's going to get you drunk, dump him. I said, well, you can't do that to people. He said, all right, give him to me. So he took him, and the next day I saw this guy at the meeting, and I said, what'd you do with Ben? He says, I took him to a drying out joint in Oxnard. He'll be all right. I said, you get any shoes out there? I'll tell you what's really weird around here. Last June, actually late May, I took a cake for 16 years of sobriety. Two weeks later, Ben took a cake for 16 years of survival. <laughs> and the son of a bitch was not sincere. <laughs> the right attitude. <laughs> Is that a bitch?
Well, I'm going to meetings and I'm mopping floors and I'm making coffee and I get six months and seven months of sobriety and I'm, you know, looking around. I'm still crazy. I'm thinking about driving into a concrete abutment any minute. You know, and I just can't handle this crap anymore and I got to make my move. I got to get out of here. I got to make some money. I got to get my career moving again. And I'm just crazy and I'm going to meetings, going to meetings, going to meetings. And I got thinking one night about those birthday cakes. They get up and they take their little one-year cake, sing happy birthday, which I always thought was dumb. And I got thinking, I said, I wonder if I get one of them cakes. Then I could make a speech. And then I can tell them, I don't believe in your program, I don't believe in your book, I never worked the steps, I don't believe in God, and I hate all of you, but I haven't had a drink. And I sat in the back of a lot of meetings thinking about that speech. <laughs> Made it okay then. Finally, when I was seven months sober, I heard a guy talk that I did not like. Did not like this man at all. He was my sponsor's sponsor, however. <laughs> and I wanted to leave. He was going to get up and talk, and I wanted to leave. I didn't want to hear him. But I was trapped. I was caught in the front of the meeting, and my sponsor was sitting in the next row. And if you're going to leave now, all of a sudden you're stuck with, where are you going? Why are you leaving the meeting, you know? So I sat there. And the guy threw me a curve because I identified with him. I didn't mean to. <laughs> and I didn't identify with his drinking story either because this guy had been on Skid Row. He'd lost his teeth. He'd left families in mailboxes all over the United States. The guy was a derelict. I mean, he was in bad shape. Lived in an abandoned car when he was newly sober. Come on. Now, what I identified was, was how he felt. Because this man described fear in a way that I had never heard it described before. And I knew he was talking about me. And he talked about a sense of inadequacy that just knocked me off my chair because I knew about that. And he talked about this feeling of not fitting in sometimes and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he talked about this sense of just being better than or less than but never equal to anybody. He talked about feelings of just not caring about anybody, just walking around like some kind of a goddamn zombie most of his life. And I knew what he was talking about. And he said, if you're walking around with a set of emotions, anything like what I'm describing, and you seem somehow unable to control and enjoy your drinking, <laughs> we got a name for that. It turns out it's a disease. I'll be damned. <laughs> it's called alcoholism. Huh. And I went up to the guy after the meeting. I said, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, I may be alcoholic. <laughs> he said, aren't you the guy that mops the floors on Tuesday night? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, Jesus, you're a quick study, aren't you? <laughs> I met Mary Carroll in Alcoholics Anonymous. She didn't want to marry me right away because I was a newcomer. She had three years of sobriety when I got here, and, and, uh, and she used to look at me funny when I, uh, when I asked her out. Uh, you know, she'd say things like, how many children do you have? <laughs> I said, well, I got six, but they're very small. You'd hardly notice them. <laughs> but I convinced her to marry me, and she had two sons, and we put these eight kids together. My license plate in California says eight's enough, and that's true. <laughs> We put the eight kids together and we started trudging <laughs> the road of happy destiny. <laughs> Polly said it today, oh boy. 
Because I'll tell you, our road of happy destiny was uh, <laughs> full of mud holes for a long time, I'll tell you. We fought and screamed and hollered and argued and carried on like a couple of alcoholics. Because in any alcoholic home, it seems to me, when two alcoholics try to have a relationship, there is a serious question on any given day as to who's in charge. <laughs> Well, we got married, and I started getting stuff back. I got a big job with CBS back east, went to Philadelphia, and I started maneuvering and manipulating and trying to be successful and rich and famous again because I figured now that I'm sober, I'm going to get my reward for being sober. This is it, baby. Now you're going to get it. Oh, I got it, all right. I found meetings that were weird. I didn't like them. They don't say hi to the speaker when you say, I'm Barney and I'm an alcoholic. They just sit there and look at you. They don't read chapter five. They don't read the tradition. They don't have birthdays. They call them anniversaries. They don't have birthday cakes. They don't sing happy birthdays. They don't even call people you sponsor babies. They call them pigeons. I said to a guy one night, I said, how come you call them pigeons? He said, on account of what they do to you. But I was trying to make my career move, and I was busy, and I didn't like the meeting, so I didn't go. Much. Every once in a while, I'd pop in, give them a break. <laughs> give them my views on step two or something. But I was busy trying to be rich and famous, and what happened was that Carol and I were fighting, and we weren't getting along at all. My kids were beginning to do strange things, like use drugs and drink. <laughs> when they get to be teenagers, they grow fangs, and it's a very strange world. <laughs> The ratings were not going up. CBS was looking at me funny. My career was not moving the way I wanted it to, and I was getting crazy. I was just out of my mind, and one night a man with 18 years of sobriety knocked on my front door, and he was there from College Park, Maryland, and he was just visiting, and he said, how you doing? I said, how much time have you got? He said, well, let's sit down and talk, and I talked to him for two hours. I told him how bad it all was. I said, baby, I've been sober three and a half years. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm trying to get my career moving. I got this wife who doesn't understand me. I got these kids that are acting up and making crazy. I can't get the ratings up. My life is just screwed up. I'm in AA and I'm sober and it ain't working. The magic is not there for me. The, the special stuff they all talk about, that crap from the podiums, don't work for me, baby. It's just terrible. And I wanted him to philosophize with me. I wanted him to, to give me some life answers. He didn't do that. Started asking me a series of really stupid AA questions. They do that, you know, just dumb questions. He said, How many meetings do you go to? <laughs> I said, What's that got to do with anything, Phil? I'm talking about some real stuff here. I don't like the meetings here anyway. He said, How many newcomers do you work with? I knew the man was nuts. Hadn't heard me. I said, I used to try to work with newcomers. I tried with them, but they all got drunk. I'm no good at that. Besides, I haven't met any newcomers here on the East Coast. He said, yeah, I know. They go to those meetings you don't attend. <laughs> he said, what are you doing about the third step? I said, oh, the God stuff. I can't get into that. I said, my higher power, actually, so I could get to the fourth step, I decided that my higher power was all of the alcoholics around the world linked together in sobriety. He said, how's that working for you today? 
I said, it doesn't work at all. That's podium talk. This is more of the baloney. But it got me to the fourth step. He said, well, I think you're going to have to go to the meetings whether you think they're properly run or not. I think you'll have to just put your fanny in the chair and leave your head outside for a while, maybe. He said, I think you have to start talking to newcomers because they'll save your life. And he said, you have to start to pray. And I said, Phil, I can't pray. It makes me feel like a phony. He said, oh, that's okay. You are a phony. <laughs> I said, well, you're right about that, but Jesus, what do I do? Say a phony prayer? He said, sure. <laughs> to a phony God? He said, absolutely. <laughs> and he pointed out that prayer in the book that Heather was talking about last time. And I got the prayer, and I said, well, I could do that. So I started saying the prayer, you know. And I thought it was funny, the phony saying the phony prayer to the phony God. And I used to pray all the time. <laughs> pray in the shower, pray in the car, pray, you know. Because it was all dumb, you know. So I did it. And I go to meetings, you know, and I sit in meetings, just hate the meetings. And I grab newcomers by the throat. <laughs> threaten them. You call me at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Some of them did. I don't know why. And some of them stayed sober, and I don't know what to do with them when they're sober. I have no idea. All I know is they're on the phone, they're in the living room, they're in your kitchen. They just won't leave you alone. Bug you all the time, they call you up. What meeting are we going to tonight? What do you mean, we? You're the newcomers. <laughs> and you're walking around the meeting and you're trying to look like a top-notch sponsor, right? Because you've got a little sobriety. You're looking good, you're talking to the other people that have four years in you. <laughs> One of these idiots walks up to you and says, How do you work the third step? It really is disconcerting and it doesn't make you look good when you have to say, I don't know, I never tried that one. <laughs> so what I had to begin to do with these guys was tell them the truth and that's the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But I didn't know what else to do. So I learned how to open the zipper and let them see what was inside. And I had to tell them how it was with me. I said, I've been sober for four years, man. I don't believe in God. I don't know what the hell's going on here. I go to meetings. I don't drink. My career ain't going well. I'm fighting with my wife. My kids are crazy. And so am I. <laughs> Keep coming back. <laughs> and the guys I get are so sick, they say, I like your brand of sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I'm going to meetings and I'm working with newcomers and I'm saying a prayer and I got fired. <laughs> and I came back to San Diego and I worked there for about a year and then I quit that job. And then I was out of work. 1978, I'm out of work five months. I ran out of money again. We're three months behind in the mortgage. We're going to lose the house. I got no money. The bills are stacking up. And the redhead is saying to me, hey, are you going to get a job or what? <laughs> and I'm saying, I don't know. Can't function anymore. Can't work anymore. My mind won't work anymore. I'm burned out. I'm tired. I'm six years sober. Six years sober. I got guys driving up to my house in Mercedes asking me questions. <laughs> and I'm going to live in a tent. <laughs> I'm crazy. She looks at me and she says, well, I think I'm going to divorce you. I said, that's probably the smartest thing you ever did. And I walked away from the house that night and I went down to the beach and I was walking down the beach and it was midnight and it was March. 
I got to tell you, I was alone. It was cold out there. And I'm walking down this beach, and I'm just feeling windswept and crazy. And I'm walking along, and I sit down on the beach, and I'm saying this stupid prayer. Just dumb. And I go, why are you doing that? You don't believe in anything. And I stopped for a second. And I looked up, because that's where he's supposed to be. I said, okay, you SOB. I give up. I can't make it. Now, if I knew that night that I was surrendering, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> See, six years prior to that, I had surrendered my right to drink alcohol. What I had never surrendered was all the rest of my life. And it seems to me, and I never really looked that carefully, that the step says, turned our will and our lives over to the care of God. I think that's everything. <laughs> I don't know what else there is. Never dawned on me. I thought, okay, she's going to leave. I'm going to get my car. I'm going to lose the house. I'm going to be broke again. I don't care. I can't be anything anyway. I can't be a success. I tried. I tried drunk and I tried sober. And I have failed, 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 and I'm tired of failure. So I'll just accept it. I'll be what I am. Nothing. Appeal zero. <laughs> Less than nothing. And I'll just get my six kids. And I'll get some stupid job someplace. I'll probably sell tacos in Laguna Beach or something. I'll just... Any place. I don't care. And I'll raise the kids. And I'll go to these stupid meetings. And I'll work with the newcomers. And with any luck at all, one of these days, the kids will grow up and I'll die. That's where I was that night. So I took the first stupid job that came along. Went back to work in Los Angeles for a station where I used to be the anchor man, and I became a field reporter there. It was not up to my standards, but I took it. That's what I do today. I've been doing it for over 10 years now. Now, when I went there, they wanted me to sign a contract. And I said, I can't negotiate contracts anymore. And they said, well, who's your agent? And I said, I don't have an agent anymore. And they said, well, how are we going to do a contract? I said, why don't you just write a number on a piece of paper and I'll sign it. And the guy looked at me and he said, you're not the same Barney Morris, are you? I said, no, I'm not. He's dead. He said, okay. So he put the number on a piece of paper. It was much bigger than anything I would have asked him for. And I laughed and I signed it. <laughs> I finished that contract and we had another five-year contract and, uh, and now it's over 10 years and I make a good living today and I have my home in La Jolla today overlooking the ocean and I have my lovely wife today and I have my kids today and they've all done fine. The oldest boy is sober almost seven years. And, uh, He married a girl who was an Alcoholics Anonymous, and they've had two little alcoholic babies. <laughs> and so her grandparents and another son of ours said, uh, little baby, and we've got these little grandkids running around, and, and uh, I have daughters who work in television production in Hollywood, and they're doing well, and, and I have a son who played minor league baseball for about six years, and now he's trying to decide what he's going to do with himself, but he's getting married this fall, and, and uh, I have a daughter who's in college and a daughter still at home in high school. I may let her live another year. I don't know. <laughs> and I have stuff. 
I have stuff. The difference is, I think today, that it's not important to me, really. It's not all that important to me. I, I believe that if my stuff ever gets that important to me again, the God I have come to understand in Alcoholics Anonymous has enough of a sense of humor that he'll probably take it away from me again. <laughs> my stuff is not the key here. My stuff is not the issue. My success comes from somewhere inside of me. My feeling of success comes from looking at some boob, take a one-year case, watching some idiot walk in the door that you don't even want to talk to and trying to share this thing with and watching them take a one-year case. And you sit there and you just feel like you just won a million dollars. And I didn't know that. I, did, I never knew anything until it happened to me. I didn't know from reading. I didn't know from thinking. I can't think my way sober. I can't think my way to feeling good. I can't do anything right. I'm powerless, absolutely powerless, and my life is unmanageable. But I have, over a period of time, come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. He hasn't done it yet, but he can. <laughs> so we have this good life today. We have, we have these good things going today, but I've got to keep the actions going. I've got to keep doing the things. I like, I gotta be around the old timers. I gotta be around the people that are sober longer than I am, who are more active than I am. My sponsor is more active than I am, and his sponsor is more active than he is. And there ain't, it was the day that I begin to feel sorry for myself, because my computer's overloaded, and I can't handle one more goddamn baby calling me about a relationship problem. <laughs> my relationship! My friend Clancy has a great line for that. He's gonna get a tape made that says, I miss Anderson, go far, far away, never come back again. When I think I'm overburdened with AA activity, when I think there's too much that I can't deal with anymore, but I don't want to make any more goddamn coffee, I don't want to be involved with any more meetings, I don't want to fold any more chairs, I've been sober 16 years, I don't want to fold chairs. When I begin to feel that way, I've got to do is look at that sponsor of mine, look at his sponsor, look at the other active people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Or I've got to look at that guy that's coming in the door who's crazy. Crazy. And uh, one day at a time, this program has given me a way to deal with my sobriety problem. If I drink again, I'm done dealing. I don't get a hand then. But I got the book and I got the steps and I got the people and I got the things to do here. Action, I think, is the magic word. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm standing here tonight. Now, I don't think there's any wonderful message you can send everybody out of here sober forever, even me. I, I, I don't think there is such a message. I think there is action here. I think there is action in Alcoholics Anonymous, involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous, being part of an Alcoholics Anonymous. And more than anything else, I think there's love in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know what love was when I got here. I've learned love from that woman. I've learned love from the people in AA. I've learned love finally from the God I've come to understand. But I'll tell you what, if you don't believe in God, don't worry about it, pal. Only took me six and a half years. Make some coffee, fold some chairs, mop some floors, baby. One day at a time, don't take the first train. Get some guy that's got some time and hang, grab his hand. Just hang out. See what he does and then do what he does. You want what he has? Do what he does. You can't think about it. You can't philosophize about it. Put your fanny in the chair. Leave your head outside. It's a great deal I got here, more than I could have ever dreamed of yet. 
I mean, God, I'm standing here in Oregon on a beautiful summer night talking to a thousand people I never met before about something I don't even do anymore. <laughs> I gotta tell you that I love you.